This is the Education Gadfly Show. Culture war there, but uh, David and Checker were having none of it. Really? I, wow. I know when I'm being baited. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You're at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, the original Education Gadfly, Checker Finn. Back like a bad penny. <laughs> Great to have you. And back like a bad nickel is David Griffith. That's not pull at that thread. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, great to be with you here. We are actually still in person. It is true. We are still coming into the office here at Fordham World Headquarters. We've been pretty lucky in the Washington metro area so far. Not too many of these coronavirus cases. This is the coronavirus edition, though. It is. Yes, the coronavirus edition that we're not going to talk about coronavirus, though there are uh, you know, some good resources up on our website and others about how schools are trying to uh, struggle to deal with this. No, no. Instead, we're going to do some shameless self-promotion. We're going to talk about a new book that Checker and I have out. Let's do that on Ed Reform Update. All right, Checker. So we have this new book out called How to Educate an American, the Conservative Vision for Tomorrow's Schools. Our listeners should know a little bit about it uh, because over the the past year and a half, we've been working on it. It started as a speaker series and has ended up as an edited volume. We've got about 20 leading conservative thinkers, intellectuals, telling us where education reform should go next. On the on the whole, these are not our education policy wonk friends. On uh, purpose. On, we wanted to get big thinkers who we don't talk to every day. That's right. So uh, people like uh, Jonah Goldberg and Ramesh Panuro, the kind of people that you might read in conservative journals and magazines, though people will recognize a few of these names. Well, two former ed secretaries. Three. Uh, Three, sorry, including Senator Lamar Alexander, who wrote the preface, as well as Rod Page and Bill Bennett. That's right. So I hope people check it out. So, Checker, you know, we've been, uh, you know, spinning off some excerpts and people have been probably seeing this here or there. Uh, I have been doing a million radio shows, mostly on conservative talk radio. I want to get your thoughts on something. Basically, the thesis of this book is to say, well, education reform is stuck in a way that it hasn't been in a long time. In part, the bipartisanship has broken down because of our crazy politics right now. So we took the opportunity to ask these conservative thinkers, what should we be doing next? And many of them made the case that while we were working on bipartisan education reform, we compromised on some things. We didn't talk about some things that we should start talking about again. In effect, they, you know, people like Yuval Levin used the term technocratic to describe the no Ooh. child left behind years. Yes, exactly. David, you, you are a proud technocrat, right? But, uh, but in this case, he was saying, you know, it was so focused on basic skills, reading and math, college and career readiness. It, it wasn't focused on the whole human being that we want our young people to become. And we need to get back to talking about those things. So we're educating not just the whole child, but the whole citizen, I think might be a theme in this book. I think it's also important to point out that the book says to conservatives, school choice is not the entire answer for everything that ails American education. So we're, we're speaking to a conservative audience here about the limits of choice, but mostly we're talking about what else is needed. And that gets to uh, citizenship, uh, civics, character, uh, things like that, that uh, we didn't uh, do much with yeah. during the No Child Behind era. No, that's right. And and the school choice point is important because, of course, we, we strongly support school choice. Everybody in the book does as well. But it's to basically say, look, 
conservatives in some respect have been so focused on school choice, especially private school choice, but also public charter schools, that you could say that in some places, maybe we have ceded the traditional public schools to the left in the same way that we have ceded the universities to the left. We see what that has come to on the universities, that uh, conservatives are scarce and we've got all kinds of craziness. We don't necessarily want to see the same thing uh, in our high schools and middle schools and elementary schools and that we need conservatives to stand up, to show up at the school board meetings, to raise questions if they don't like what they are seeing. To run for school board. To run for school board. But here's my question, Checker. It feels a little bit like what we are saying is... What we really need right now at this moment in time is we need conservatives to get more serious about fighting the culture wars through our schools, right? Uh, You know, we need to push back on the left when it comes to how to teach history. You got to push back on those 1619 craziness and the Howard Zinn craziness. We got to push back on the left when they say social and emotional learning and we say, no, it should be character. We got to push back on the left. Hold on. Is there a but? Yeah, we we got to push back (laughs) on the left when they say, you know, all we should teach about uh, success is about go to college, get a career, or or talk about sex ed. We should also talk about the success sequence. We should say that if you want to be, don't want your own children to be poor, you should make sure you don't have children until you're married. Uh, These are all hot button issues. Uh, Is that in effect what we're saying, Checker? I mean, we kind of have a culture war that's already raging. Is that our basic argument? Is that we we want might as well to get, fight it? Yeah, get away from the technocratic <laughs> stuff and let's fight the culture war instead. Well, you're in one of your feisty moods and have clearly put on the boxing gloves and eager to fight. Another way to talk about what this book is about is recovering some ancient truths about the role and mission of schools uh, to uh, resume doing things. A lot of people, I think believe schools do already, which is work on character and civics and citizenship. Uh, that's another way to frame what this book says. All right. So why you're, do I feel you're, like the next question is directed at me? <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy to have it, David. I mean, but it isn't it, but it is, it is culture war stuff, right? Checker. I mean, look, it, it is true that in the no child left behind race to the top years, we did set aside some of these debates, at least within our little education policy world, you know, and we focused on things where there was common agreement. Everybody agrees kids should learn to read and do math and to be able to write. Uh, that college and career, you know. And so now we must also focus on things which have less common agreement. Yes, I get that. And so how do we, is this the right time for that, given how polarized the country is? David, you want to get in. I do. I'm I'm struggling. I haven't, you know, I haven't made it all the way through the book yet, but I'm struggling with the dichotomy you're drawing there, right? Surely we agree on things besides reading and writing and and math, right? Like, I mean, talk about character education. Are you... uh, I assume that you're all for kindness and honesty and hard work and a sense of responsibility to the community. Like, yes, there are some aspects of that we can find things to disagree on, but like, I guess I just have to push back a little bit about the notion that like, I believe that we actually do conservatives and liberals, however you want to define them, agree on quite a bit when it comes to those things too. You, you should lead this next chapter in American education reform. I, I couldn't uh, and agree forage, more. <laughs> forge the new consensus. I couldn't agree more. Well, maybe that's true. I mean, look, so, so a big theme in the book is we need to get back to teaching more history, certainly in our elementary schools. Bill Bennett makes that case very well. There's so little of it happening. And as the kids get older, we need to teach it in a way that is compelling, but also balanced. And there's a worry. Conservatives are worried that there is indoctrination going on, that the New York Times 1619 Project which actually does have a lot of content, which is fine, but there are some arguments built in there 
uh, trying to make the case that, you know, the founders only wanted the revolution so they could protect slavery. Well, it's a you feel know, guilty they, about America America's view, a kind racist, of a Howard Zinn feel guilty view rather than a be proud view. Well, and right, Howard Zinn, even before 1619, that there are high schools out there using Howard Zinn, a, a people's history of the United States. If that's all the kids are getting, instead of getting, okay, Howard Zinn's textbook on the one hand and maybe Bill Bennett's textbook on the other, and let's have a debate and let's talk about both sides. But there is this worry about indoctrination. And when people push back, you know, against the 1619 people, for example, uh, I know from personal experience, we get called racist, et cetera, et cetera. So how do we, I mean, well, are you sure we really agree about this stuff, David? Well, you, you managed to find something to disagree about as usual. I mean, you use the word indoctrination and school is inherently about indoctrination at some level. It is a, it is a patriarch, you know, it is a, I don't want to say patriarchal, I'm using loaded language, but like there, there is an aspect of school that involves adults telling kids, yes. you know, facts that are coming from the adults and ways of thinking that are coming from the adults. It's all a level at some level it's in local parentis, right? Sure, and and sure. so you disagree with that. And I tend to agree with you on that. I think that the pushback that, you'll get probably has less to do with anything that you're saying in the book, although I'm still working on it, and more to do with whether you really speak for conservatives. Well, we don't speak for all of them and don't purport to, but we speak for the thoughtful ones, the smart ones, the ones who actually care about better schools. Right. And uh, look, maybe you are right, David, that these, you know, as we search for disagreements, sure, we can find them, but they, but there's still more agreement than disagreement. I mean, maybe most people on the left and right would say, of course, kids should get a balanced perspective, for example, about America. You know, I mean, my view would be, as I've been talking on these radio shows is, look, you know, we should talk about our lofty ideals that the founders set for us. And we should talk about the many, many ways we have struggled to live up to those ideals, including the ways that the founders themselves lived up to those ideals. I mean, of course, that is an interesting part of the story. It's captured in Hamilton. It's the hypocrisy of, of Thomas Jefferson, all the rest. Of course, that is different than sending the clear message to kids that America is a fundamentally racist, right. oppressive country. And maybe we, the world, we had been better off if America hadn't been founded, which I, I well, don't think most parents there's some not people want people earning their living by purporting to argue that America is just a fundamentally flawed country. I mean, there are a number of advocates, agitators who, whose job it is uh, to fan those flames. I think the agreement that um, David's talking about and that you're hoping for is easier to find at the 30,000 foot level than at the level of what is Miss Jones teaching on Tuesday in her social studies class. It's at that point where I think we get less agreement about uh, what the kids are reading, what they're being told, how they're being indoctrinated uh, by that particular teacher. At the high level, yes, I think we can find a fair degree of agreement. Yeah. And so that's why, you know, Checker and I have been very critical of school boards at times, but in the book and in the, our conclusion, we actually say, look, let's acknowledge that they play an important role when it comes to these issues. It's legitimate for school board members or, or parents at school board meetings to ask, are you teaching the 1619 project in the schools? Are you using Howard's in what's happening around character? How do you handle discipline? Are we adopting the crazy notion that discipline is somehow not okay anymore? And we need to just have kids talk about their feelings. If you're doing sex ed, are you also telling kids that it's important for them to start to, to get married uh, before they start a family? I mean, these are the sorts of things that uh, that school boards can actually play a very constructive role in, again, and at least making sure that there is balance in these conversations and it's not just 
the sort of liberal dogma that wins the day. One of the worrying essays in the book is by Princeton's Robbie George, who says that he sees kids coming into college from high schools who were never taught in high school to look at both sides of an issue or to consider multiple points of view about an issue. And that uh, this makes it a whole lot harder for college professors to uh, cause young people to acquire uh, that way of looking at the world if they didn't get it in K-12. Well said. We will leave it there. Thank you, Trekker. That's all the time we've got. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So, yeah, I tried to spark a culture war there, but uh, David and Checker were having none of it. Really? Wow. I know when I'm being baited. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like when when I mentioned the word technocratic, you lit up. uh (laughs) What is it when people go around using that word as if it's pejorative? I, I well, you got me there. Kind of evolving that way, isn't it? I yes. know. Well, maybe it'll come around. I, again. I think I used it in an email to you recently too. Yes, <laughs> yes. There was a time it's a technocratic when approach. We 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 we'd be like technocratic. We would right. say like, well, you know, we, people would be happy that uh, a technocratic government took over <laughs> in a Latin American country that uh, they were on the upswing. But uh, but no, now yes. now we're we're Context supposed to think it's bad. Matters. Oh, uh, this populist period. <laughs> We're in. I don't know. I think we may come to uh, really like the technocrats as we go through this coronavirus thing. Uh, yeah, if they help maybe. us uh, save lives. They figure it out. That's right. But I digress. I digress. Uh, Amber, what do you have for us today? Have, and is it from a technocrat? Uh, I don't know if I'd say that. <laughs> it's from a, some, some creative researchers. I'm, I'm calling this an enterprising new study. Okay. Uh, out from Doug Harris and colleagues at Tulane. Oh, he definitely. People, yeah, people on Twitter like to call him a technocrat all the time. <laughs> I, it's, it's unfair. Again, it's just unfair. All right. I, go, go. It asks whether the really rise nice in graduation rates are real. Everybody cares about this question, right? And so he actually, they this team tried to get to the bottom of it. There's a common concern that measures associated with high stakes accountability get distorted. Mm-hmm. They get gamed. Several studies have looked at the relationship between accountability and testing, but there's been far less attention on how accountability and graduation rates are linked, mm. which is particularly important since the data underlying graduation rates are almost completely under a school's purview, right? Yep. And they don't get a lot of, quote, external validation, all right? Which is a nice way of saying that schools could uh, be gaming the system. The study- We've talked about here quite a bit in terms of credit recovery and other other ways that- That's uh, right. That we see these graduation rates increase. Working out. Uh, It's a long study, multiple parts. So this is super broad brush, okay? Um, But it starts by documenting that NCLB did indeed increase high school graduation rates. They use a difference in difference model by constructing a national state level data set that goes back to several years prior to the federal accountability requirements under NCLB. Mm -hmm. For each state, they identify its graduation threshold and which districts were below the standard. States with more districts below the statewide NCLB induced graduation thresholds saw larger increases in graduation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then they go about trying to determine whether those increases were real or part of, quote, strategic behavior. Okay. I like that euphemism. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Good one, Doug. Yeah. Don't, don't call it cheating. No. Uh, yes. Strategic behavior. Four different analyses, which again, try to suss out whether schools made it easier for students to graduate. 
including through things like credit recovery programs. Mm-hmm. Okay. We call it when students do it, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, keep going. They identify which states required students to pass graduation exams in order to graduate. Mm-hmm. Look at that first. Mm-hmm. Since every student had to pass them to graduate, schools in states without these exams could more easily reduce their standards, they hypothesize. Mm-hmm. So if the graduation rate increases were due solely to, what do we call it? Strategic behavior. Sorry, strategic behavior. Yes. One might expect the growth to be concentrated in states without these exams. Yes. Yet there was no relationship between increases in graduation rates and the presence of graduation exams. Mm -hmm. Second, they analyzed GED rates. Federal graduation accountability guidelines exclude GEDs such that schools could not count GEDs towards graduation rates. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's not surprising that they found that GED completion rates had declined after NCLB, which suggests that the quality of the high school credential did not decline either. Mm-hmm. Number three, they look at detail, then they start going into state level data to try to, yep. again, suss out whether what's going on. In Louisiana. In Louisiana. Uh, examine student level data around credit recovery in Louisiana. They identify students who retook a course after initially failing it during a period when schools had the option of using credit recovery courses. So it's kind of a little... It's a little tricky because they didn't have exact credit recovery data, but they Mm -hmm. did did the best they could. They tested whether the trends in these courses differed before and after accountability pressures in Louisiana increased based on whether schools were threatened with accountability sanctions. Bottom line, they found some increase in credit recovery, but not nearly enough to explain the rise in graduation rates. Mm -hmm. Finally, they used Louisiana data to analyze. This this was fascinating. Exit codes Mm -hmm. that schools use to identify graduates and to exclude students from graduation calculations. They identify which are most prone to manipulation. They talked to a bunch of people on the ground. And Mm -hmm. um, so they thought the hard to verify exit codes related to transfers out of state, transfers to private schools, transfers to homeschooling. Mm -hmm. But their analyses show only slight increases in the use of these hard to identify, albeit legitimate, exit codes. Mm -hmm. So like Johnny hasn't shown up for school for... A month, so he must be homeschooled. Uh, that well, sort of thing, right? There was only yeah. slight increases in those kind of codes. Or Johnny yeah. has now gone to the virtual school down the street. <laughs> yes, okay. uh, they well. conclude that the rise in high school graduation rates likely reflect a real increase in human capital, as well as some quote. What are we calling it? Strategic, strategic behavior. behavior. Mm-hmm. But the evidence on the whole suggests that accountability helped increase the national high school graduation rates in producing what looks to be real achievement as opposed to strategic behavior. Strategic there you behavior. go. That's it. Wow. This is exciting. Look, I am glad to be proven wrong on this. If, if this holds, I mean, I assume it would be nice to get this kind of evidence from other states as well. We've been very worried here about whether the graduation rates uh, increase, which is quite dramatic, mm-hmm. has been for real. If the answer is mostly yes, you know, which is not to say entirely yes, right. and which is not to say that there might be some outlier schools out there where there's a lot of games, I'm sorry, strategic <laughs> behavior Going on, which is a problem. Strategy in games. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But look, this is good. And, and, you know, there's also this question in my mind. There's the accountability around high school graduation. And Mm -hmm. and there was at least anecdotal evidence in the day that, that, look, high schools all of a sudden were like, well, I guess we really got to focus more on getting these kids across the the line. And that's Mm -hmm. good. Also, that because of the other accountability provisions in No Child Left Behind and before, that that the lowest performing kids mm-hmm. made these dramatic gains in the 90s and 2000s, in the earlier grades at least. And so they were coming into high school better prepared. 
you know, again, still below grade level, but two or three grade Mm -hmm. levels ahead of where they otherwise would have been. Right. You know, so what, a ninth grader that's maybe reading on a sixth grade level instead of on a third grade level, Mm -hmm. those kids are going to be able to graduate high school more often. Right. Right. So this is, uh, this is all upside. It's all upside. We it's should just, upside. are we done? Should we just <laughs> declare success? See, reform works. I mean, Amber, did you buy the Louisiana part of the study? I mean, I thought it was the best they could do, right? Yeah. I mean, like I said, the way that they identified credit recovery was there's not a code that says credit recovery. Okay. Right. So they had to kind of, you know, do the best they could do. And then the exit codes, I mean, you heard how I explained it. I mean, they had to sort of hypothesize these are the ones that we think might be more open to gaming. Yeah. So anyway, that's why I call it. it's enterprising. It's creative. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you know, the, this these are super hard. This is why we haven't tried it, right? Mm-hmm. Like this yeah. is a super hard question to address. It's hard. And, and yeah. what about this notion? We come back to this all the time. People used to think No Child Left Behind was a big failure. And then the studies finally come out years later saying, oh, actually, here's another example of a way that we think NCLB had a causal impact on positive student outcomes. I mean, and and I mean, there's a case to be made that we did. I mean, we talk about the bubble kids and there, there was a lot more attention, right, to kids who were sort of on the perimeter of being able to sort of get over the line here. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a case to be made that, yeah, schools spent more time, you know, with some of those uh, kids that were. What about the cross-state right business? It sounds like you're a little skeptical there. I, I have to admit, I was a little mystified. I was just mm-hmm. trying to skim it. I mean, mm-hmm. it seems to run contrary to what we know about exit exam. I mean, what, that they're so easy that it wouldn't have much of an impact anyways. Well, no, I mean, it, it, that it actually went up in places mm-hmm. with exit exams, right? That's like kind of the opposite of what you'd expect, yeah. right? Right. I don't know. Yeah. And it was only three states. Right. right. It's only three states. Yeah. yeah. Do we know which ones they were? I don't. Right. I don't. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But, we'll find out. Yeah. Right. But, but I mean, it's, it, it's a fair point though, right? You know, in, in those states, you'd feel like, okay, the graduation rates, you know, going up, even though they had mm-hmm. to get over the exit exam bar. That's compelling. Right. That's, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. It would be more compelling if we had these exit exams everywhere so that we had that external validation uh, right. That kids are actually learning uh, enough to be considered a high school mm-hmm. graduate. And do we think any of these actually might be high quality? I know we always throw them under the bus, but. Oh, the credit recovery? Uh, the high school exit exam. Oh, you know? Yeah, well, I think mean, some of them are okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. that statement is almost certainly true. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned from you, David. Yeah, I've yeah, learned right. strategic conversation. That was a strategic yeah. uh, comment I made. Yes. All right. Good stuff. Thank you, Amber. Thank you, Doug. Hey, we call you technocrat in the best way. Okay. (laughs) We think that's a positive. That's all the time we got for this week. Till next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.